Gorillas have big, fat lats hanging off of their back like sides of beef. They have super deep bicep insertions. Their glutes insert super low on their legs. They got a yoke. Gorillas are yoked. I wish I was a gorilla. Noise. I wish I was a gorilla because then I'd eat grass. Grass for muscles. Grass for muscles. Grass for muscles. Please join me in welcoming the stage. Grass, grass for, for muscles. muscles. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for the comedic stylings of Grass for Muscles. With musical guest, Grass for Muscles. I would now like to bring to the witness stand Grass for Muscles, Your Honor. We are all gathered here today to lay to rest <laughs> Grass for Muscles. Alright, I like this. This yeah. bit has run its course. start these episodes with a joke, and so taking a uh, page out of Bojack Horseman's book, Depression. And welcome back to Zero Credits, the show where we talk about things. My name, of course, is Henry. And my name is John. I'm a sad aardvark, and I'm an intern. And together we're Henry and John, the sad aardvark who is an intern, Coming at you to discuss the cultural happenings of that there zeitgeist. Yes, I'm fresh out of prison. Fresh out of prison. No, actually, I'm still covered in those wounds we sustained on the beach, but we shall not talk about it. I'm purging all thoughts of whatever happened from my mind, which I think I have said... Almost every first week of November for at least the past three years. Interesting. And to that end, I will start with my medication, self-medication. Of course, this is Sierra Nevada Torpedo Extra IPA, which I think we are down. Do not quote me on this. I think we are down to one and a half cases. Really? Yeah. What'll you drink after that? Oh, all the Hans pills. Yeah, we still have, like, three cases of Hans Jesus pills. Christ. Are you ready to switch from extra IPA to a light Pilsner? Uh, that would be great. I think Hans pills taste a lot better than the Torpedo Extra IPA, but I'm not indulging in either, for I'm drinking water tonight. That is correct. John is being a good boy and watching his health and not consuming three beers in an hour, unlike yours truly, who... You know, probably shouldn't be doing this. I, listen, recently we had a holiday weekend that I cannot remember, and I drank and ate a lot, and my body just feels kind of pickled right now, so I'm doing a little reset. That's pretty good. Yeah. it's. I, I saw you during that. You did. Wait, no, it was actually the Thursday of that weekend. Yes. 
Was, that was the beginning. <laughs> oh, no. And it all went downhill. But you saw me at the bocce ball tournament. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, that was fun. Then we went to a schoolhouse. Then we went to a schoolhouse. Yeah, that was fun, too. If you are ever in the Austin area, check out both Batch, which mm-hmm. is the, the bocce ball place. Batchy ball. Batchy ball. And a schoolhouse pub. Really great establishments. They're both on Maynor. We give them the zero credits. We have been there and drank their seal of okayness. Yes, and that is the first time we've done that, and perhaps the last. Uh, we will see. Uh, but yes, I'm just trying to get a little bit less pickled over time. I'm not shutting out drinking entirely. Some people do like a dry October, sober October. What an insane concept. Except shout out to people who are sober all the time. That's great. Uh, that I've is, heard of a dry January from you. Oh, yeah. You do that a lot. I do dry January more often than not because I think January is a very easy month to do that in because you've just gotten your worst behaviors out of the way. Not even your worst drinking, but around the end of the year, Thanksgiving to New Year's, you drink the most, you make the biggest fool out of yourself, and the most changes in your life happen. Uh, even if you only end up sowing, uh, reaping, the rewards of those seeds in the spring months. You've already ruined your relationships. That just happens to you in the spring. Your life sounds very interesting. <laughs> uh, however, in January, it's easy. October is so hard because it's so cold and you just want to drink to stay warm. Yeah. Uh, but I, for people out there who are sober all the time, hats off to you. That's very noble. That used to be me before I got on the wagon or fell off the Well, were you ever on the wagon before? No. Okay, so you hitched a ride on the old fun Uh, wagon. On the fun wagon. Yeah. yeah. Now, when people fall off... Wait, no, when they fall off the wagon... So you were on the wagon before. When you fall off the wagon, that's when you drink. Okay, so I was on the wagon for 23 years. You were on the wagon, you were on the wag, and then you fell off never to return. Yeah, I don't think it's a problem. Eventually, Red Dead Redemption 2, like, that wagon might come back around, and then you can hop on and shoot the conductor. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can drive that wagon off a cliff and see the equivalent of wasted. I don't know what it is, because I never played that game. It's it's wasted. No, you get wasted. It's still wasted? Oh, because of the drunk joke. Yeah, but no, it says dead, I think. Uh, Oh, Red Dead. (laughs) Yeah. It says one of three things. It says Red Dead or Redemption. (laughs) It flashes up, you died, while Blom (laughs) plays, and then it's like Dark Souls. But it's spelled Y-O-U-D-E-A-H-D. You died. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the Western accent. Because of the Western accent. Boy, you did. I've really been wanting to replay Red Dead Redemption 2 lately. You never finished it. It's so hard to finish a one. <laughs> Why would you want to replay it? Okay. You can't replay something you never finished. Maybe I'll start back up from the part where the game's a real bummer and I've been playing it forever. It's very fortuitous that we talked about Red Dead already in the podcast, because I was going to bring it up later. Really? Yeah. Should we bring it up now or wait till later for a nice denouement taste? I don't know. Let's do the denouement one. Okay, so we'll come back to it. Yeah. All right, well, it's a big topic. It's pretty much all I prepared to talk about this week. Oh, we can talk about it then. No, I'm just saying, like, when we get to it, expect to to be in it for a while. We'll get to it later. But first. But first. But first. But first. The way I enter every room (laughs) 
But first, it's I don't. You ever hold on? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let me get you ever. Hold on. Let's do both of our things that we're holding. Yeah. What are you holding? You know, have you ever been a server in a restaurant? Never. Okay, boomer. Uh, (laughs) Jesus Christ. So, if you've ever been a server in a restaurant, one thing that you learn to do... Open the swing doors of your butt to protect the food. Yeah, and I do that a lot because I bring drinks to people a lot of the times. I'm carrying a lot of stuff. uh, And I will do that pretty much out of habit at this point if I'm holding like one plus things in my hand. It's really just a perfect way to open a door. Just enter a room, ass first, you present yourself like a debutante because you're opening the door with your ass but then you're turning to show everyone what you've got. It's a reveal. Yeah, it's it's a reveal. I'm just imagining you're holding a singular (laughs) one beer. One beer. You have a free hand. Yeah. And you still do it just to no. be like, hey, I think I still, this is what I'm working with. I still do that sometimes. Yeah. I really do. Being a server is very tough. Uh, so the thing I was holding mm-hmm. was that putting more emphasis on the butt <laughs> and butt first yeah. makes it sound like butt first. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But first. But first. But, but first. So, but first. But first, but first. Mm-hmm. Alright, well, I think we found <laughs> definitively the episode name. Yes. Anyway. Fortuitous because we're only ten minutes in. Perfect. Perfect. Anyway, what were you saying? Uh, wow. We've got a lot to talk about, John. I don't know if you know this. But I have traveled. Really? Yes. Where whence? <laughs> to what to what? I went to St. Louis. I, I, I used whence correctly. You did. Whence means to where. Yeah, you did. Okay, you good. absolutely did. Great. I was expecting <laughs> the when to stop, and then the <laughs> sense came with it, and it caught me off guard. And when things catch me off guard, I repeat them. Yeah, but uh, where'd you travel? I went to St. Louis. Oh, wherefore? <laughs> that is still correct. <laughs> you did it again. Alright, so yeah, so we did something, my wife and I did something we never do. We uh, we traveled for one day. Yuck. As in, we woke up on Saturday, hopped on a plane, went to St. Louis, spent the day in St. Louis, woke up the next day, and flew back home. And let me tell you, what a rush. What a crazy rush from a person who is a creature of habit. Who does the same things day in and day out, almost on like a weird schedule that I have just found myself in without realizing I was in it. Nothing has made me more awake and like, I don't know, weirdly giddy than breaking that routine by like jumping on a plane and flying to St. Louis and just experiencing a new town for less than 20 hours. Uh, it's really cool. I almost never do that, especially now. It's super worth it, though. It's very stressful, and it fucks up the rest of your week. Oh, yeah. So worth it, though. It's amazing. Like, I can see why rich people travel. Yes. Because it's a it's a thrill, like, just being in a new place. And yeah. Like, oh, we don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. We could take the train, and we took the train. I'm like, this is neat. Mm-hmm. They have infrastructure in St. Louis. Sounds nice. <laughs> Must be nice. They've got public transportation all set up and ready to go, and, like, nobody uses it. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it's like Austin, kind of, except we've got, like, 30% of public transit set up. 
Yeah, pretty much. You know, they built a temporary version of the downtown stop so you can ride the red line again. Oh, nice. That's very local news, not even humor, so it appeals to no one. Well, you can finally, you can keep doing that red line uh, booze cruise. Red line booze cruise. Anyway, St. Louis. So the reason we went to St. Louis, we went to see a band. A band called Ludo. I've been into this band for, I want to say, 15 years now. Mm -hmm. I found them on the radio with uh, Love Me Dead, the the only single that's of theirs that I ever played on the radio nationwide. Yeah. Uh, They toured for a while. They released an album in 2010. Mm -hmm. I think that was the last album they dropped. Ow, wow, that's... Okay. <laughs> um, so they dropped their last album in 2010, and around 2012 or so, they kind of disappeared. They stopped touring, they stopped performing, and then 10 years later, like years later, last year, they announced that they were going to do a Halloween show. Ooh. Two nights. Ooh. And we couldn't go. No. And so we got sad, we're like, okay, we missed it, but hey, we still like them. But this year... And, like, March, they announced, hey, we're doing it again. Two nights. And that's it. We're getting back together. We're doing a show. And I just happened to mention to my wife. She's like, let's do it this time. And so this is a band I've been following for years. Our first dance at our wedding Mm -hmm. was to this band. Amazing. And so we go. The theme theme was prom. Mm -hmm. So they had three shows. The first theme was, like, Monsters. Yes. All these monsters. The second theme was prom. Mm-hmm. And the third theme, the third, the th- yeah, the third theme was superheroes. Yeah. So what they did was there was a storyline between the three shows. Mm-hmm. A bunch of, bunch of monsters show up. Yes. Then a horror movie happens and a prom gets attacked by monsters. Okay. And then superheroes show up to f- fight off the monsters and save the prom. That's a really cool concept. We only got to see, because we only bought... Tickets for one night, the one of the shows. So yeah. we got to go to the prom show, and they encouraged everyone to dress up like as you were going to prom. And so we did, my wife and I. And w- walking up to the theater, I was like, oh no, we're going to be the only losers in prom gear. Everyone was in prom gear. Yes. Everyone. This was an amazing experience. I got to see a man named Clownvis. Okay. He was the opening act. Uh Uh-huh. A picture, if you will, an Elvis impersonator. No, I gotcha. (laughs) Say no more. See if you can follow me here. Uh Uh-huh. His name is Clownvis. Uh Uh-huh. He impersonates... I think I know where this is going. He does magic. Okay. Not well. So he's Elvis. But a clown. And... uh, What? (laughs) What? What? And you might... This is the craziest thing I've ever heard. You might... What a misdirect. (laughs) You might think, oh, he's doing it for a bit. No, he actually sings very well. Okay. He's just also a clown. Is he good at being a clown? He's okay. Eh, you can't win all your battles, I guess. Anyway. What I want to talk about, about this concert. The concert began. And they started off with Saturday Night Thunderbolt. And I sang every word to that song. Yes. And then the next song played, and I sang every word to that song. And then the next song played, and I sang every word to that song. And this happened, as you can imagine, the entire (laughs) concert. I sang every song with the band 
for an hour and 30 minutes straight. No breaks. Like, mm-hmm. there were a few breaks. There were, like, some comedic beats and some story beats. Yeah. But this was the first time in my life, John, that I went to a concert and I knew every song and I was just so excited and happy yeah. to be singing along with a huge room full of, like, 500 people all dressed like they're in prom mm-hmm. to a band that hasn't toured in years and walking away from that concert, I had the, the straight thought in my head, is this what it's like for everyone? Like, people who go to concerts, is this what it's like for them? They get to live this every concert they go to? They know all of the songs? Uh, so, for concerts for bands that you really like, absolutely. It is an intoxicating feeling to be surrounded by a crush of hundreds or if you like a very popular band during the time when the most popular thousands of people who are all kind of riding the same shit you are to varying levels. Yeah. But everyone's bought in. Like being part of a crowd like that. So good. So good. There was a great part of the concert where the, where, uh, the stand up comedian slash moog player, Tim Convy. Goes, uh, everyone, let's give it up to Andrew, the lead singer slash uh, backup guitarist. And uh, everyone cheered. And the next thing we knew, the band kind of walked off stage and it was just Andrew. And he, he sang Horror of Our Love. Just kind of playing, you know, a little like riffs on the guitar, but like no instrumentals besides that. Yeah. It was just him and 500 people singing Horror of Our Love. A song that is about... Basically a serial killer falling in love with someone. Nice. And in that moment, I looked to the security guard who was standing next to me, who was, like, not having a good time. And I thought, you are the only person not into this. Yeah, you are the only person not sharing in what's happening right now. It's a really, like, religious experience. Like, it it will fill you with ecstasy when things like that happen. I had... Well, I've listened to this band... Four years. They were like the first band besides the Killers that I absolutely fell in love with. And there were songs that would come up in the albums and I would skip them sometimes. Like, oh, you know, I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. And they, those were the songs that they played and the crowd was just so into it. I was like, oh, this is, this is the, the crowd pleasers. Yeah. And I knew every word still and it was still great, but it's like, oh, no, play, play your weird stuff. Yeah. Play the weird stuff for me. And then they did. Yep. Then they played the weird stuff and the crowd was still into it. It was phenomenal. For a band that gets it, it and especially for bands that don't tour a lot. Like I remember uh, at some point I saw the Pixies and it was great because they give you what you like want in that these are like the big hallmarks of your life with this band, but they also give you weird stuff, like one person singing like an unaccompanied, almost unplugged version of a song. Like, yeah, they they play with your adoration of a band. Oh, so good! <laughs> Seeing a band you love is a it's an un you just can't replicate it. It's yeah. just so good. I, I mean, like I've seen I've seen Sir Paul McCartney in concert. I, I went to see Say Anything. I wasn't into them. Yeah. I just went to tag along. But when you saw Paul McCartney, that was at like South By or ACL, right? ACL. No, not everyone in that audience is on the shit. And we were seeing him because it's like, oh, it's Sir Paul McCartney. And yes, I like the Beatles. Yeah. Not a big Wings fan. Jet. 
I don't know what that is. It's a Wings song, I oh, think. Oh, okay. And so, you know, he played songs from all over, but I was really just there because he was telling stories about, like, playing with the Beatles and writing songs. I'm like, I would listen to this guy talk about his experiences forever. Yeah. And then he would play songs. I'm like, that's cool. That's pretty cool, too. But with Ludo, it's like, the concert started, and I'm not a big horror movie guy, but, like, there was a video presentation to set up the entire concert. And, like, I got legit, like, chills because it's like, oh, shit, we are the victims of this horror story. And it felt like I might possibly die here. But the premise was that we, uh, some witches had cast a spell on us. Of course. Turning us into zombies. Uh Uh-huh. But if they could get our hearts pounding and, like, cheering, they could stave off the spell a little bit. Oh, very nice. So they're like, we gotta... We gotta throw a rock concert! And then they just show up in their suits and start rocking. Amazing. Oh, man. Ludo, legitimately, is a great band. I wish they would come back. Sounds like they have a little bit. They come back for Halloween shows. Like, they, they've scattered into the winds. Andrew Volpe now has a kid. And I don't know what he does in his spare time. He's a Patreon I haven't really visited. Tim Convy, as I said, is a stand-up comedian. And Mogist. He plays the Moog. Yeah. The Moog? It's pronounced Moog. It is. Yeah. Uh, Matt Palmeria. I don't know how to say his name. The drummer. Mm -hmm. Don't know what he does. I don't know what Tim Farrell does either. It's it's a wild world where I... You know all their names, Henry. This never happens with music. I expected to see Tommy, who was the... He replaced Matt for a little while on the drums... But he went off to make his own band called Tommy and the High, P- High Pilots, which is now called Beta Maroon Play? Five? Oh. Beta Play Beta or Beta Play? Okay. I think they changed their name because 21 Pilots got bigger than they thought. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they can't, anyway. Can't be two pilot bands. Religious experience indeed. I found God in a catalytic converter in Topeka on a Monday night. Anyone who knows Ludo... Knows I just quoted Topeka, a song by Ludo. I know no songs by Ludo, but it sounds like an amazing experience. Have you ever been at a concert? This is a legitimate question where you know what song they're going to play last. You know, it's the song that everybody knows. Yeah. But that's like the least exciting song of the night. Yeah, uh, that was true when I went to go see Nathaniel Rayliff in the Night Sweats when you were there. Also true when I went to go see Andrew Bird. Because you know the songs that end the night. Yeah, so like Love Me Dead was their big radio hit. And I can kind of see why they still play it last. Because it's the way I see it is like they're paying paying an homage to the song that kind of like made them. Yeah. It was their big song, the song that... Pretty much everybody in the crowd knows if they know no other songs. And so it's like, you know, it's a good sort of, like, send-off. Uh, but, like, every other... So- they played Broken Bride, which is... Stay with me. Broken Bride is a little special piece because it is the first song of five mm-hmm. that is basically the rock opera. Okay. And then later... They played that. I'm like, what? We never expected to hear Broken Bride. Mm-hmm. How do you get out of it without playing the next song? And they found a way. Because people clap at the end of the songs and they cheer. Yeah. And they use that silence to go into a different song. Yeah. That's how concerts work. Uh-huh. But then later in the No, night, I, they just play the music unbroken <laughs> from one song to another without stopping or breathing. Like 30 minutes later, 
They played Save Our City, which is the second song of the Broken Bride rock opera. Uh-huh. Independent. I was like, it, and those are really the two, the two songs that could stand alone mm-hmm. on that, on that rock opera. Yeah. Never, never did I think I would hear them play Broken Bride live. A, a well-constructed set list is priceless. Yeah. And I feel like playing the big one last as popular because it's the one that like makes people's brains light up. Because it's like it is true that most of the people in the crowd that's the one they know. Yeah. But I think it's I think that's the one they know is a more important concept than we'd be letting on because it's the one they know because it's most likely the one that made them hear about the band. Yeah. So in playing the popular song, the oldest, most popular song, the effect you get on a crowd is not, oh, this is like nostalgia for that song. It is nostalgia for your entire journey with that band. Like to hear the first song, you hear your relationship with the band reflected back at you. You travel, okay. you travel through your memories to arrive back at the origin. Classic concert move. What's crazy is like, yeah, I, I can pinpoint exactly where I was when I first heard that song. Yeah. But if you, so like a Nathaniel Rayliff and the Night Sweats, that one is bad because they always do SOB at the end of a big show. Son of a bitch. Yeah. Well, um, really, they should do You Worry Me. But yeah, they should do You Worry Me. It's a better it's a song. song. Uh, but they do SOB at the end of uh, pretty much yeah. every concert. But SOB it is, is the song that everyone knows in a bad way. Yeah. And that it is the song that everyone in a largely disinterested crowd is like, Ah, oh, Nathaniel Ray Live in the Night Sweats, they made that song about drinking, let's go. Yeah. Uh, which I think... It's it kind of does them a disservice because SOB is not really indicative of the rest of their music. Not at all. They are a beautiful band, but I feel like they, Mumford and Sons-ishly, yeah. uh, are preceded by a crowd that doesn't actually care about their music in the right way. That's a weird way to gatekeep art, but I think it's what's, true. What's the big song for uh, Mumford and Sons? Little Lion Man. Oh, that's their big one? That's the one that made him popular. Oh, that's actually my favorite one by them. It's a good song. It's really great. Uh, so that's the one I would wait all night to hear. Yeah. But, but at least, you know, uh, what's it called? Constant Warrior? No. Uh, Constant Gardener? Yeah, yeah. the uh, John Le- <laughs> LeCare novel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Spy Who Came In From The Cold? Uh, the Day of the Jackal. But I'll... We're just naming John Le Carre. John Le Carre. Yeah, John Le Carre novels. John Le Carre. If uh, you want to read novels about a real spy, yes. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, look it up. That's At a good your one. local library. Yeah. It's ISBN is 545-6382-670. And if you ever find yourself in St. Louis, I just want to say the zoo, the science museum, and the art museum are all 100% free. You can just walk in and experience aminals, simonence, and art. Manolts. Uh-huh. For free. I thought you were going to say the zoo, the science museum, or the whatever else. Terrible. <laughs> thought you were going to end on a big, a big St. No. Louis dunk. No, we went to the Peacock Diner. Do you eat peacocks? Have you ever heard of the Peacock Diner? It's no. amazing. They are platinum lead certified. And energy efficiency. They oh, that are, sounds very cool. They are the most sustainable diner in the nation. We are given plastic straws. 
Yes. No, sorry. sorry. You were given plastic straws. You were given Time out. unsustainable <laughs> tuna. You were served on plates made of cadmium. <laughs> that was a slip of the tongue. The, we chairs, were given... the chairs, when you stand up from them, dissolve into asbestos. We were given paper straws. Yes. That's the only thing I could point to to say, like, oh, lead platinum certified. Every time you order from the menu, it's on heavy plastic stock that is burned in a furnace. That is very funny, because uh, I, I said the opposite of what I meant. Anyway, Peacock Diner, really awesome. Every light's an LED. Every light's an LED. Every light's an LED. Uh, now, I know that we were talking about the religious experience of a concert, and that experience sounds great. It's amazing. I highly recommend it. If you're like me and you're not into music, go to the concerts of the bands you like instead of the concerts that your friends want to go to. I mean, I would always recommend going to a concert of a band that you unabashedly love, even if it sticks. We spent like $200 on merch. Do Yeah. Fucking do it. When are you going to get another chance? We bought a poster. We're you gonna, should always do it. We're going to frame it. Support the art you love. Now, speaking of... Religious experiences. Religious experiences, fervor, art that we love. I want to ask you a question. I might have an answer. A lot of fun things have happened over the last week, but are you familiar with a little thing called Big Structural Bailey? No. You are not aware of Big Structural Bailey? No. I'm going to show you a video. All right. And I can't explain it to you. Here we go. Listeners at home, I find myself in this position often. I am now tasked with describing the video I have just watched. Imagine, if you will, a 50-foot dog. Uh, yes, the video opens, like all good uh, found footage horror movies do, with the monster just <laughs> in center frame. Uh, with, with the monstery. A 50-foot-tall inflatable dog with two giant pennies strapped to its chest. Our protagonist, Elizabeth Warden, walks up to this big dog. She she struts with her arms, arms in religious yes, ecstasy. In religious ecstasy, as almost, almost as if surrendering <laughs> to the magnificence of this giant, which I can only assume is a golden retriever. Yes, it is a golden retriever. And... and she goes to hug it, notably in the background, as she is walking yes. up. There is an ominous People chant from, acol- from acolytes off screen chanting Medicare for, for all, all. Medicare for all. Over and over. You never see them. You never see them. And then she goes to hug him, but ends up just patting him on the leg. Yeah, she she hug touches him for a second, then turns around and pats his leg and goes, "Good boy, good boy." And I think she cry, she lets out some some fervent cries, yeah. walking up to him. She goes, "I love it, I love Bailey. it, Bailey. <laughs> That's my good boy." 
And then the, the video jumps, and suddenly everyone is <laughs> chanting, Big Structural Bailey! Big Structural Bailey! Yes. <laughs> which is hard to, hard to chant. Big Structural Bailey. Uh, she then hugs someone who comes in from off camera, and the video ends. Or loops. Or loops, in this case, if you're on Twitter. Or it never really ends. Now that video, you might say, surely wouldn't be posted on Elizabeth Warren's own Twitter. It was. Uh, That's pretty great. As a as a promotional item. I would like to contend that anyone out there should watch the Big Structural Bailey video because... Uh, have you ever read, like, a Junji Ito comic? Like, the one with uh, This Hole Was Made For Me and Uzumaki? Oh, I actually have read... Multiple times this hole was made for me. There's there's a kind of Junji Ito, a kind of David Lynch energy yeah. that this video exudes that is impossible to quantify unless you've seen it. It's a work of pure genius. This is interesting. What would have caused them... <laughs> I get Bailey. Bailey clearly. I'm putting look. I'm putting my detective hat on. Bailey clearly the name of the dog. Yes. Big because the dog is fifty feet tall. Yes. Where does structural <laughs> come from? Big comma structural Bailey. Yes. What is that? Where does so, that come from? Okay. Bailey is Elizabeth Warren's dog that she probably adopted. 0.5 picoseconds before announcing her candidacy for president of the uh, United States. Because every president is legally required to have a dog, so yes. you might as well get that step out of the way. Absolutely. You might as well get the dog because the electability. And, uh, and look at it this way. Even if you don't get the presidency, you got a dog. You got a dog that you immediately put down once you lose the presidency. Jesus, fuck. No. <laughs> what is this, uh, Kingsman? Now, big... St- There's so much to cover. So big. I don't want to spoil anything. Big structural Bailey is a a pun on big structural change, which Elizabeth Warren will say sometimes, but to the best of my knowledge, isn't a known quantity chant wise. <laughs> it's not like her crowds are screaming big structural change I on the regulation. Don't believe so. I meant on the regular. <laughs> on the regular. On the regulation. Uh, this video is disturbing. What, what makes you say that? To me, it's like ev- any cult. Yes. <laughs> like any cult with the chanting and the idolation of a massive animal. Why the two cents strapped to its chest? Oh, because that's the Medicaid, Medicare for all payment? Sure. It's only two cents? It's only two cents. Or here's my two cents? I'm thinking it's like a here's my two cents thing. Here's a problem with this. No one knows. This is going to sound inaccurate, but I'd like to make this as clear as possible, and this may change by the time we publish the episode. No one knows the origins of where Big Big Structural Structural Bailey Bailey came from. They think maybe the campaign commissioned and created it because we know that big inflatable animals are like there's uh they do these things in like new york where they have like fat cats and big money pigs for like Uh, protests and stuff clearly there's a business that makes giant inflatable animals and they think maybe the warren campaign did it 
But if they if they did that, the question then becomes: Why was Elizabeth surprised by it? Who is the man she is hugging? Who is the man she is hugging? If it was created by her supporters, how much did it cost? Why does it look that way? Why is it in the middle of an empty gray street? Or what else are you going to put a 50-foot inflatable dog? I... This is my favorite thing. This I've watched this video dozens of times. I cannot get enough of Big Structural Bailey. Because even in its minutest composition of camera movement... It comes across as an outsider horror movie. Yeah, it's the way, the a found way, footage film. The, the way it lazily tries to track Elizabeth Warren's movements and focus on her face. The way it goes in and out of focus and drifts between the dark idol of big structural Bailey and the small, weak, simpering Elizabeth Warren shouting, I love it, Bailey! With yeah. her arms akimbo. It's so good. Everyone should watch Big Structural Bailey. And Big Structural Bailey is, of course, a big structural thing that's happening in culture right now. The Elizabeth Warren's comms team, her meme team, I think she called them at some point, which shit sucks, uh, is trying that's... to like reclaim the meme to her benefit. But if you've seen... And all of this, of course, is barring any feelings that I or Henry or any listeners might have about Elizabeth Warren, because this is just a series of facts. But if you've seen any of Elizabeth Warren's team's memes, they're bad. They're capital B bad and out of touch. Hello, Uh, fellow kids. Yeah, they're real hello, fellow kids. Uh, They really suck. And the fact that they are desperately trying to claw this piece of, I'm going to say, art away from people who would use it against her and failing to do so it's an entirely different layer to something that is already incredible has anyone already like thrown a bunch of filters on it and overlaid it with like horrifying music i'm sure that they have like freeze frames of her doing you know the the arms stretched out they they have to elizabeth warren worships (laughs) a 20 foot 50 foot dog idol it's that's not my Christian America. Big structural Bailey is just so good. You know, you have two no, moments. Wait. You have Bertie Sanders, which was pure and great. I was actually thinking of Bertie Sanders because that was the, the the spin team, the media team, whatever you want to call them, spun that really well. In that, like a bird landed on this podium, and then it became a moment. Yeah, which they then dropped as soon it was <laughs> as as it was un, not relevant anymore. Yeah. And now Big Structural Bailey is in the hands of the malcontents and the Warren camp is trying to take it away from them. Yeah. It's hilarious. So I, this is how you actually do the video. It's still the black and white filters, slow, and like when, when she outstretches her arms, freeze frame, and then just someone like says, thou shall have no idols before me. <laughs> and then like it keeps playing and like it's just freeze frame and like reading from the Bible. Yeah, trying to make her seem like a cult leader, and then uh, this is actually a campaign ad for our most Christian candidate, Tulsi Gabbard, <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard, Pete Buttigieg. Tulsi Gabbard actually makes me sad. There's a lot about this that makes me sad. We can get into it. Uh, we shouldn't. Though. We've got a lot to talk about. To sum it up briefly, Tulsi Gabbard was a Bernie crat. 
and then suddenly wasn't anymore and has a ton of Republican ideas. Yeah, weird. And, like, also has frequent trips to Moscow. It's... I'm not saying that she's a Russian agent or anything. It's almost as if a lot of people were saying and championing a lot of things that Bernie Sanders said, and then suddenly became Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like that's happening. I don't know. All right, so that's an end of that talk. Yeah. But long live big structural <laughs> Bailey. May you stay out of the media, no, the the meme team's hands yes. and live on as just pure, unadulterated art slash conspiracy <laughs> video fodder. Let big structural Bailey live and die as art, as he would have wanted. And as he would have wanted of us <laughs> we should to die. <laughs> Look, Big Structural Bailey has only one demand, and it is blood. Yes. And we must give it to him. Two cents and blood. So long live Big Structural Bailey, and John's gonna somehow tape these two parts together and make it sound okay. Absolutely. Now, I don't know if you had anything else to talk about. I have a huge thing to talk about, something that we really ought to talk about. Alright, so the next thing I have on the list is... uh, there's a uh, There were a couple things that I, I referenced in that that I'd like to talk about. And I'm going to do a little choose-your-own-adventure. Oh my god, so many of these tie together. Uh, I'd like you to do a little choose-your-own-adventure. And I want wait, wait, you to choose between. Before, before, you fit, before you say this, I need the fans to know. John has written out notes on the palm of his hand, and he keeps looking at them and smiling and laughing. And now he like he even like clapped them together as he said, "I want you to choose your own adventure." I need you to picture this. Uh, so my hand says, "I hope my death makes more sense than my <laughs> life." Oh, that's a reference. Anyway, so anyway. you want me to do a choose your own adventure? I want you to to do a choose your own adventure between. Uh, Private equity fucking over journalists. That's oh, path the, A. The Gizmodo thing and the, the death up, of Deadspin. Yeah, that's an update. Or do you want to do a maybe short, maybe long dive into what's now being referred to as the B-slur? Oh, boomer. You've got two options. Option A, option B. These are both really great topics. Um, I think the boomer thing is more... Look, rest in peace, Deadspin. You know, it sucks that it died. But let's talk about this weird B-slur. Yes, and speaking of Choose Your Own Adventure, Seth Meyers' new stand-up special on Netflix. There's a skip politics button. There is a skip politics button, which has two possible answers as to why it exists. Uh, I think that Seth Meyers seems to be a, a pretty uh, principled person, so one of these seems less likely, but still really scary. It's either a joke, and he worked with Netflix to make it a joke for people who said that his sets were too political, uh, which I think the funnier way to do that is when you start, if it's a skip politics and you do that, immediately the credits roll. That's a funnier way to do that. That would be hilarious. Or it is an effort by Seth Meyers, or maybe Netflix... To allow either people who are apolitical, which there's no such thing as being apolitical, or uh, Trump-adoring people uh, to enjoy stand-up specials. That's a much darker version of that that I don't like. Well, I, I have an answer for you. Uh, Seth Meyers asked Netflix to put it together. It was a okay. request by him. 
And uh, I, I think it's because he knows he's a late night host. And yes, he does a lot of Trump jokes because if you're a late night host today, you have to. Yeah. And so he, I, I think he wants to divorce his stand up from his obligations as a late night host. Okay. And so if, for those people who are tired of hearing his late night host Trump jokes, you can just get to the story about how his wife gave birth in the lobby of his uh, apartment complex and then the credits roll. Great, cool. I like Seth Meyers. Uh, yeah. I think he's a principled guy. I like him as an interviewer more than I like him as a comedian. I've never seen his comedy, I don't think. I don't... I've, I mean, he was really great on Weekend Update. Shame you can't just take that format and make it into a show. That is a shame. Because that, that's just The Daily Show. And and then that's been bad for a long time. Whoops. Uh, whoops, Trevor Noah. Uh, now, man, I miss John Stewart. He was great. Uh, yeah, oh man, I, oh man, it, it's tough. you know, John Stewart would take that big structural Bailey thing and like turn into this whole like funny like moment, and we would yeah, all it laugh. would be part of the culture. Yeah, it would be really funny. Yeah, now Trevor Noah does it, and, and Trevor Noah goes. <laughs> Here's what Trevor. Noah... Let me tell you no, what no, Trevor. Th- Noah this is would... it. This is what Trevor Noah's gonna do. Ha <laughs> ha! That's a big dog. That's not. That's right. the whole joke. I feel like what would happen is that he would play that clip. And then he would turn, and the clip would be gone. Elizabeth Warren would be sitting there, and he's like, "Why are you so brave?" Yeah, yeah, he'd be like, "Elizabeth Warren, the dog's too big. <laughs> the dog's too big, too big. Anyway, it's a big dog. Tell me again how Bernie Sanders is wrong. Now white uh, people. <laughs> uh, yes, sucks. Uh, anyway, what are we talking about? Boomer. Seth Meyers is a boomer. I'm scared. Uh, anyway, okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Yeah, this is really funny. I like it. Uh, very quick Deadspin update. All of them quit, and the editor that was hired by the private equity firm quit. Yeah, no, the magazine is dead. It's gone. Sorry, website. It's a website. Back to Boomers. I said the magazine is dead, and your response should have been, okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Uh, now... We're talking about bubblegum crisis. My segues are so much cleaner than yours. I just want to. I just want to. I just want to boast right now. So we're talking about bubblegum crisis, the late '90s, early 2000s anime, uh, where the enemies were called boomers, uh, and that is the world we're living in now. However, <laughs> there is a there's something going on right now where. Gen Zers, Zoomers, yes. Zoomers, Zennials, the, the chosen people. Yes, the ones who got it right. Uh, Gen Zers, Zennials, Zoomers, and Doomers. Uh, they have been, they have brought to fruition one of the most scientifically perfect mimetic responses uh, in the history of discourse. And everyone's seen it now because at the point of recording this podcast, it has reached a point of uh, media saturation. It's becoming uh, like everything else on the internet. Uh, it grows like a beautiful sprout in the dark, being beautiful and full of potential. And then the second anyone who fucking writes for a living sees it, they squeeze all the life out of it. They write endless articles about it and turn it into something else. John, that's what we do in this podcast. Uh, it is. And we're doing it now. Yep. Uh, so the phrase, of course, is, okay, boomer. Stylized always the same oh, way. Do we need to censor that? 
Uh, we'll look into it later to see if they're a protected class. Uh, it's always all lowercase, no punctuation. Okay, Boomer. It is meant to, and I don't want to be one of those people who does a willfully pedantic job of writing a 5,000-word essay breaking down what it means. They're like, well, actually, it means if you're from a privileged economic class, this... Fuck off. It's It's a dismissive rebuttal. It's a dismissive rebuttal that, number one, dismisses effectively and dismisses credibly based on class. Yeah. So good. So, yeah, not on any sort... It, okay, there's a weird counter spin where people are like, replace any time you said boomer with the N-word and see if it's still okay. Okay, well, cool, cool. But, Not at all the same thing. Because, and if you, you don't think it's okay, then you've made the first ageist slur ever and you should feel ashamed. And to those people I say... Okay, Boomer. Yeah, okay, Boomer. Uh, I mean, ignoring the fact that uh, there have been multiple articles talking about lazy millennials. Yeah. Uh, Ageism ageism goes both way, Boomers. Uh, Now, here's a Medium article. I think it's a Medium article. uh, Posted by some dumbass. And the... (laughs) The, oh my god. The, uh, we're really doing our due diligence tonight. The Medium article that is being shared around, and I shall not read from it because I do not want to give the dumbass the time of day. Uh, the headline is, Dismantling the Beesler. How OK Boomer is a victory for Russia. And to that I say, oh there used god. to be things that you could tell people to do on the internet that are a lot less cool to say now. Uh, but I wish... To say it facetiously, obviously. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, no. Like, yeah. No, don't worry about it. Uh, but yeah. You can still tell them to go fuck themselves. Yeah, go fuck yourself. Uh, if you wrote that headline or you feel that way, go fuck yourself. Okay, Boomer's great. Okay, Boomer is so good because it's succinct and it's something that we almost never cultivate on the internet in that it's classist in a good way. Uh, it is... I was thinking about this on the ride over. I feel like OK Boomer is to this generation as Rousseau's Eat the Rich was to the French Revolution. Yeah, that's nice. If the people are hungry, they will eat the rich. Which, I don't know, that's a little Swiftian. I guess it's too on the nose to say that one thing about eating something else is Swiftian. Uh, But I think OK Boomer is genuine. It, it's not uh, it's not a facetious statement, because obviously no one's going to eat the rich, except I will consume Jeff Bezos. I will vore his bald head. Uh, however, OK Boomer is genuine. It yeah. comes from a place of disrespect, distrust, and disdain. And most importantly, and I need to stress this a lot, uh, in comedy, they say, you know, don't punch down, you know, punch sideways or punch up. Yeah. Okay, Boomer is absolutely <laughs> a punch up. Yeah, there, by its which definition. Means, by its, which means it's like, sorry, it's not offensive. It's punching up, which means fuck you. Yeah. You don't get to say stuff. Do you know what the most interesting thing about Okay, Boomer to me is? Yeah. Is that it is used multi-generationally. Because... I think a lot of the people who are getting mad about OK Boomer, yes, are baby boomers, sure. But they're emphasis on the baby. Uh, emphasis on the big whiny baby. But a lot of people getting genuinely mad about OK Boomer are Gen Xers and millennials. Because you can say OK Boomer to a Gen Xer. You can say OK Boomer to a millennial, and it can apply. Yeah. 
Because people can be a generational cohort of Gen X or a generational cohort of millennials, but still be extremely entitled and very, like, boomerish in their worldview and their class. Then it becomes sort of ironic, but still applicable. Yeah. And that stings doubly hard. Oh, it's a flamethrower, dude. If you're talking to someone who's a libertarian, okay, boomer. If you're talking to someone who's, like, a hardcore capitalist, okay, boomer. If you're talking to someone who's, like, a grammar Nazi, okay, boomer. It's so good. The funny thing is, uh, so there have been some not-so-good hot takes about this whole okay boomer thing. So, what me coming into the fold, because I took the weekend off from media, which, oh my god, that felt so good. I can imagine. Uh, So I came into it with the weird counter-reactionary thing to it, where all these articles, like the one that you, you quoted, or the headline you quoted, where there were tweets where people were like saying... This is the new N-word. And all I could think of is John Mulaney's uh, stand-up where he says, like, if you're comparing two words and you won't say one of them, that's the worst word. Yes. Like, come on. you. And, like, so many people are, like, trying to say this is the new N-word. It's like, hold on. One of these has existed for 200 years yeah. and has a lot of weight and a lot of, like, pain and suffering associated to it. Yeah. One and OK Boomer is just, like, whiny babies getting their feelings hurt. It's not oppressive. Yeah, the the N-word is, is used to harken back to centuries and upon yes. centuries of pain, oppression, humiliation, death, and despair. Like, it's... The reason why that word is bad is because it, it's a powerful word that evokes hundreds of years of denigration. Yes. However... It is systematic oppression yeah. to the point that it was normalized. And that is scary. However, okay. Boomer... Yeah, okay, Boomer... What, doesn't have any of that. What Boomer is... What okay, Boomer is saying, in effect, is... Whatever, you come from a place of such privilege that I don't respect your opinion yeah. and you don't have a place to comment on it. Yeah. Which we haven't had an easy way to say in the past. No, it's been like all these articles about like people, uh, millennials aren't buying diamonds and you would see like a long-winded response about why, why we're not buying diamonds and now you can just say, okay, Boomer. Yeah. And, like, just dismiss this whole weird diamond thing, because who the fuck cares about goddamn diamonds? The uh, the thing that I was reading on Twitter, a Twitter thread, uh, lost in a sea of people, like I said, writing pointless missives about what they think the, like, etymological origins of okay, Boomer, and, like, its philosophical place in the conversation... The um, I think the most prescient one that I read that explains why the reaction to it is so negative is because it shuts people down, but more importantly than that, and why people hate it so much, is it shuts people out. Because it says, hey, what you're saying isn't important, right? Yeah. It, it shuts people down. It's like, this isn't part of the conversation I'm going to have or acknowledge. But it also says, this is a conversation you can't have. Your opinion is irrelevant. And in a lot of cases, in situations where you would say that to someone, that is true. But that's something that, like, 
we haven't had an easy way to say, based on class, you cannot have this conversation. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It does a lot of things. One, it sets up the dichotomy of privileged versus unprivileged. It comes from a class uh, perspective, which you pointed out. And it, it just sort of encapsulates this thing where it's like, yes, there are positions of opinion that do not cross generations, that do not cross classes, and should not be normalized. And I think that's, you know, I'm doing the thing that you said you, we didn't want to do. I'm, I'm dissecting OK Boomer. It's our job. Um, but I think it does all of these things in a way that has this Gen Z spirit and energy that I'm so very envy, envious of. I, I, I want to say, I was making jokes about wanting to die decades before these these no good Gen Zers. Yeah, I mean the problem is like we're just like uh we're just sad. We were the big be- yeah, we were just sad and they're they the, these these youngins who I, I admire and applaud are doing so much more of their sadness these days. Yeah, they're being productive with it, which is great. We're just paralyzed by it. Yeah. Oh my god, yes. Yes. Yeah, we're paralyzed by our anxiety and our depression. They normalize it and understand we we I've, fight against the dark. I've never had someone so succinctly sum up what I've been feeling with words that I have access to but never quite put together. Yeah, paralyzed by depression and sadness and the overall entropy of the systems that we put up put in place. And these Gen Zers are like, let's make art. Let's 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 rebut. In the way that pisses people off. Let's troll, but with purpose. Oh, man, they're so good. Okay, Boomer. Let's, uh, fuck... What? No, fuck that. Fuck you. Fuck. Oh, this is the new... <laughs> this is the new slur! Oh. Uh, yes. No, yeah. you're... The... Yeah, Gen Z, cool. Uh, probably bad. Who knows? Uh, good slur. <laughs> I don't think that's ever been said in the history of the English language. Is uh, it a slur? If it, I don't think it's a slur. What is the definition of slur? It's just what they are. It's just what it is. Yeah, you can't say that about slurs. That though. depends on what, you, what your definition of the word is. Is you're right. Is that Bill Clinton joke? Okay, boomer. Yeah, that's I'm definitely gonna stop using it. Okay, boomer. No, you can look. All of my knowledge comes from the past. Yeah. I mean, so does everyone. Except- oh, so everyone's a fucking boomer then, huh? Yeah, class. Is this you refusing to talk more? No, I was just trying to, uh... We never did out. room tone. We'll do it later. <laughs> we'll do it later. <laughs> oh, God. It's fine. We really boomed into this uh, yeah. podcast episode. We, we really did. Now, I've got not a lot more... To discuss, we've kind of covered everything other than a, a kind of big one, but judging by how heated we both got the last time we talked about it, probably we'll discuss later. Oh, Joker movie? No, Marvel movies. We'll talk about that on a different episode. That sounds all right. Yeah. Is this about Martin Scorsese? It is. Clarifying his comments? It is. I saw the headline, didn't read the article. Uh, we'll, we'll both have time to read it and metastasize, no, metabolize our thoughts and then come back to you. We've, we've hit a weird theme lately with art and what is art, what isn't art, and, uh, Red Dead Redemption and, Mm -hmm. you know, let art be art and stuff like that. 
Death Stranding. Ah. Comes out November 8th. A week before it came out. This is kind of an unprecedented mood. Usually when there's a review embargo on a game, they'll lift the embargo a day or two before the game comes out. Sony lifted the embargo a week before the game comes out. And something very interesting has come out. Uh-oh. Have you have you seen the reviews for Death Stranding? I've uh, I've seen some early reviews for Death Stranding for its first thirty or so hours because apparently this game is super long. It's very very long, and uh, so far the reviews have been very polarizing. Yes, it, it seems to be. I, this is a phrase that I hate because it's overused, but it seems to be a love it or hate it experience. And the reviews are very interesting in the way they are written. So just for some background, Death Stranding is Hideo Kojima's first post-Metal Gear game yes. from Hideo... Or Post-Konami. Post-Konami. This is his first independent studio... Kojima Studios. Kojima Studio game. It is being, being billed as a AAA game. Huge budget. Norman Reedus. Norman Reedus. Huge budget. Norman Reedus. Um, Conan O'Brien. Mike Smickelson. Conan O'Brien! Mads Mickelson. Mads... Guillermo del Toro. Like, this is a huge, huge project. And we're going to get into this because I failed to call this a game. Death Stranding? Yes. What about it is not a game? Well, let's just listen to what people are saying about it. Oh, are we not listening? <laughs> Wait, what? Here's Death, Death Stranding is a cerebral experience that isn't fun. 3.5 out of 5. Uh-huh. Where's that from? That is from Hardcore Gamer. Oh boy, Hardcore Gamer. Gotta love getting your fucking game news from Hardcore Gamer. IGN. Death Stranding delivers a fascinating world of supernatural sci-fi, but its gameplay struggles to support its weight. 6.8 out of 10. Uh-huh. I'll read some of the more positive ones, too. Okay. Uh, Death Stranding technically, is technically well-crafted game. Hideo Kojima surpass, surpasses... Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Death Stranding is technically well-crafted game. That's the sentence I was reading. Hideo Kojima surpassed himself in terms of writing and game loop. The game offers an excellent narrative story that makes a deep sense. Who is this from? It's a Czech writer. Oh, I see. It's uh, from Indian... Cool. 9 out of 10. Nice. Sublime in form and substance, Death Stranding is one of the greatest games of this generation. JVL, a French... Publisher. Mm-hmm. I, you should I, know it's sublime. That's a very French word. I, I'm reading... Because this is an aggregate of, like, everything. Mm-hmm. I want to find one... Oh, my God. All right, next-gen base. Jeff's Death Stranding is a weird game. It won't be for everyone, but if you can find something to like in the relatively slow start, you'll love it by the end. Typically Kojima, for better or for worse... It's a story about reconnecting people through the eyes of a bystander that becomes much more than that. Okay. 9.5 out of 10. Okay. Uh, Player2.net.au. There are too many. We really need to socialize game journalism, so there's only like two. Many expect things of Hideo Kojima, but it takes a degree of self-confidence to deliver something else instead. 
He left Konami because he wasn't allowed to take the time and spend the money to make the game he wanted, so it is depressing to see Death Stranding make so many mistakes that appear on some level to be dictated by what people expect. A D. Okay. Power up! Death Stranding is not entertaining. As such, it fails as a video game. It fails as a narrative, and it fails overall. 3 out of 10. Okay. So that's like a click review. Uh, Here's Saudi Gamer. Is it a new genre of games? Perhaps. But it definitely succeeds in presenting polished and novel, even revolutionary ideas, even if the overall experience can drag on and feel monotonous at times due to uneven story and set-piece pacing. 8 out of 10. Now, my question is, like, we... Clearly the reviews are, like, from a bunch of, like, publications that I have no idea about because I don't care about games journalism. Yeah. Um, but the... So clearly people are, like, pretty split on its merits as being entertaining. But as far as, like, not being sure about whether or not it is a video game or not, that's I'm more concerned about. Well, he... The, the funny thing, why I brought that up is because there were a number of reviews that I, unfortunately I can't find them right now in front of me. Oh no. That said, it wasn't fun. It wasn't enjoyable. Five out of five. Uh-huh. The gameplay suffers, but the story is okay. Ten out of ten. Uh-huh. All of these video game journalists reviewing a video game saying that it's not fun and giving it like really great scores. Uh-huh. If a video game isn't fun, why is the score so high? So if, uh, so the, the argument to be made is if they played this thing and did not like it because it's boring and long, uh, is, is the argument then that it's not a video game? Well, the argument is if you are making a video game. Uh huh. And and making a triple A title and giving it to all of these people to review, and you want it to be more than a video game. Uh huh. If you want it to be art, I wouldn't have given mm-hmm. it to them. I wouldn't have given it to reviewers. Yeah. I would have just released it on its own. Mm-hmm. But we live in this this cycle of video game development where you have to give it to critics and they have to review it, and then people read the critic criticism and buy it or they don't. Yeah. But if you want this to live on its own, and, and Kojima has said, like, their studio's going to make movies in the future. Yeah. If you want to do that, do that. Mm-hmm. Break the cycle. Yeah. But because you put it in a cycle, people have certain expectations. Mm-hmm. You expect it to be a video game. You expect it to be fun. You expect it to have video game-like things in it. Yeah. You might expect, which happened, a Rick and Morty commercial about the video game. Because that's a very popular thing. We want our thing to be popular, so we're going to pair it together yeah. and make it appeal to a wide audience. Mm-hmm. I don't think Death Stranding is for a wide audience. Uh, I absolutely... The, the, here's the Hideo Kojima thing. Hideo Kojima... I think that Hideo Kojima is a genius. Uh, and I think that in making Death Stranding, and in a lot of the things that he's done that have been uh, the most divisive, they've actually proven out to be pretty genius moves. Uh, I don't think that he's particularly interested in, in creating, like, a standard video game. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily, like, saying it's a bad thing or not. Uh, but do you think that Death Stranding, based on what you've seen, might not be a video game? I think to call something like Death Stranding, which seems to be a an experience mm-hmm. or 
a new sort of form or, or or an exploration of storytelling to label it a video game might do it a disservice. Okay. Would you say then that you agree with Martin Scorsese about the Marvel movies? Because if we're discussing that all movies are movies and that movies and cinema are interchangeable for not serving your your definition of a video game, oh, as God. the Marvel movies don't serve Martin Scorsese's oh, definition of cinema, you agree with him. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm just saying, based on the evidence that I'm hearing, that is accurate. I'm just saying, we don't do anyone any favors by, by gatekeeping the things that we describe things as. I... In tr- Look, I'm on the side of Death Stranding. Yeah. I think calling it just a video game or, lab- or treating it in the same way as a video game... I guess I would agree in Martin Scorsese in that sense, but I'm not trying to gatekeep. I'm yeah. just saying this is something new. We haven't seen this before. People are comparing it to walking simulators like Gone Home or... Firewatch. Or that weird graveyard one where you're just an old lady that eventually dies. That one's bullshit. Wait, is that the one where you sit on a bench and you can feed some birds? Yeah, and then you eventually die, I think. Why do you die in a graveyard? I don't know. I think you, like, ragdoll. This was early walking simulation days. I think video games are at a precipice or at a peak, a tipping point Mm -hmm. of we're going to have a conversation soon, and I'm just trying to get there first. Yeah. Uh, what is and isn't a video game shouldn't be the conversation. Is it a good experience or not? Is it a new, a way of, of experiencing a story? Absolutely should be the conversation. Yeah. And I'm, your comparison to Martin Scorsese, I think reduces what I'm trying to do. I, I think it's tough though, right? Because I, this is something, it's, it's a conversation, and I largely did the, the Martin Scorsese thing as a bit, gotcha. uh, for what it's worth, because I feel like the conversation of what is or is not a video game is difficult, uh, because we have, we have expectations for what exists within the mold of a video game that are much more, like, binary and defined than what we would say is yeah. a movie. Yes. Because what, the the arguments that we have for like what makes a movie a movie or what makes cinema cinema is that the uh, overall experiences that have been provided to us through movies and cinema are much, much, much wider than video games. Like, video games have done a lot of things and evolved over time, but largely had the same goal. Whereas, if you look at movies like Wavelength, which is a 40-minute movie where a camera just gets progressively closer to a picture on the wall and just ends, you don't have a lot of video games like that. So, like, how do we... I think there is space for a video game, for lack of a better term, which is, I think, whenever I say video game in this context, that's what I'm saying is a video game for lack of a better term for what this kind of art is. For movie, you nailed it because it's just a moving picture. That's going to be true of all of them. Well, see, the, the mediums are complete. Yeah, the media, I guess. The separate mediums are yeah. are wholly different because at the end of the day, Marvel film or The Irishman, they're both. You can point at it and say that's a movie. Yeah, because it, it, 
in Martin Scorsese's case, it would I, he would have more merit or he would have more ground to stand on if he were talking about someone calling like a flip book a movie. Yeah, he probably that's obviously two different mediums. It's not cinema. He's doing a classist thing. Yeah, absolutely. He's because if you read his comments, and we won't get into it, amazingly we somehow managed to talk about Martin Scorsese anyway. Well, you've kind of jarred. Jammed him in. But if you read his comments, I still don't agree with what he said. Uh, but I think that there's space in video games, for lack of a better term. Wait, V-G-F-L-A-B. V-G-Flab. Lack of a better term. V-G-Flob. For lack of a better term. Oh. Word. No, B is not how the word word begins. Uh, I'm going insane. I think that there's a space in video games, for lack of a better term, to be unenjoyable. Yeah. However, to create a video game experience that is unenjoyable, I totally see your point, seems to contradict what a video game is. If you break down just the word game, yeah, it's supposed to be for entertainment, for enjoyment. Yeah. And here's just, here's what started this whole rabbit hole into the reviews, uh, Edge Magazine mm -hmm. refused to review it. Okay. I'm going to read the, the Twitter thread. There's no review of Death Stranding in the next issue of Edge because the embargo insisted we finish the game before we could review it. Print deadline was a factor, but we ran out of enthusiasm long before we ran out of time. Put it this way, we probably won't be reviewing it in the, in the following issue either. Oh boy. Or put it this way, I told my wife this morning that the Death Stranding reviews were out, and she said, oh, is that the game about backpacks that you hated? <laughs> Amazing. Edge 339, on sale next Thursday, has a four-page preview based on 40 hours with Death Stranding. There is no number at the end. And that comes from writer Nathan Brown of Edge Magazine. Okay. I... The, we're entering a very strange place, and I see why you brought up Red Dead Redemption to talk about this. Red Dead Redemption is a game of realism. Everything yes. takes forever to do. Yes. They, it is a hyper-realistic game that sort of robs the player of fun for the sake of experience. And I... I almost feel like it does that in a way that is enjoyable, but just on the edge... Death Stranding is a game that has been described as a walking simulator where the walking is so realistic it borders on unenjoyable. Yikes. And Death Stranding you play as a as a courier. Mm -hmm. Norman Reedus. Sam Norman Bridges, Reedus. Or whatever. Who must walk across the continental United States in a post-apocalyptic world to deliver packages. That is the gameplay. Yeah. It is, you walk across the continental United States with packages on your back, and you must keep your balance, you must find even footing, you drink monster energy. Amazing. No lie, to restore your stamina, and to use the bathroom, you get advertisements shown to you for some show on AMC called Ride. Wait, what? To use the bathroom? <laughs> You have to use the bathroom. Now, here's a fun thing. You can make weapons out of your excrement. Okay. That's cool. I'm down with that. Um, I feel like Red Dead Redemption, 
I loved that game dearly, but I I started to feel like Red Dead Redemption was the first time that we were stepping our toes into something new for video games. And not like, I don't want to say it's new and exciting, because Red Dead Redemption is kind of a horrifying experience, because it's something that is so slavishly devoted to realism that everything takes forever, and the game is over a hundred hours long. Yes. It's over a hundred hours long of things that, for the, for the most part, you're not super excited about doing, but the story is pretty good, the characters are kind of great, the writing's not super reductive, which is nice for Rockstar. Uh, and it, there's a lot to enjoy there, but when I was playing it, I started to feel like, oh, we're starting to like step into a territory where you could spend enough money and man hours on a video game to create something that's interminably long and vastly alien. Yeah. Because if Red Dead Redemption did anything, Red Dead Redemption 2 did anything more than it already did, it would be completely alienating. And they struck a good balance, but also you have to look at Hideo Kojima, who I still think is a genius. He has been trying to make video games unenjoyable for a long time. And that's not a dig. It's a thing he wants to do. Yeah. He has really liked exploring the idea of making a video game not traditionally fun. Uh, that started in, like, the original Metal Gear Solid. It continued into Metal Gear Solid 2, where long stretches of the end of that video game are supposed to make you feel powerless and confused. And then Metal Gear Solid 3, less so, that one's more fun. Big sections of Metal Gear Solid 4, he wanted to be unenjoyable. He wanted you to feel... Uh, like you were in a war zone, he wanted you to make you feel disoriented, chaotic, yeah. hopeless. I just want to read some experts from CNET's review, which people are, are lauding as probably the best review. Mm -hmm. And I'm skipping a whole lot, because I don't... We're spoiler-free, I don't want to spoil this game. Yeah. So days later, when people ask me if I enjoy Death Stranding, I don't even know where to begin... I'm not even sure enjoyment is the point. I've played and loved so-called walking sims like Dear Esther or Gone Home. I've played and loved games with luxurious pacing. This is different. This is ten plus hours of banal, obtuse terrain traversal that drained me of all enthusiasm in life. The main issue is this. Death Stranding is bad at walking. In a game primarily focused on walking, that's a problem. Sam Bridges' animations feel clunky and inconsistent and only sporadically communicate the weight of making endless footsteps in the wasteland. It's all a bit rough. What do you call a video game that tries to not be enjoyable? I don't know what you call it. For the record, I just want to say CNET uh, apparently doesn't give a number. Okay. I, I, Maybe it's unreviewable. Well, in a world where video games are art, where you can have COD, Call of Duty, Black Ops 4, COD Blops 4, Blops 4, right next to the Stanley Parable, and the same medium, they are so different. Both have different merits and different feels. Mm -hmm. One is based... On killing people of a shotgun from 120 miles away. And the other one is a, a new experience in both player choice and storytelling. 
in a, in a weird sort of postmodern way where nothing actually matters. How do you reconcile the two? That's where we are in the conversation. I think the way you reconcile the two is that both strive to entertain. Are, are, are we getting to the point where we need to dissect forms of entertainment? Like, yes, there is the, the, the mindless fun of blasting a dude's head off of a shotgun. And yes, there is like a weird cerebral fun or enjoyment out of making a different choice and seeing what the narrator says. How much do we dissect fun to the point where we're just excusing a game that isn't fun, but has this AAA budget that has celebrities, that has a genius, an admitted genius of, uh, of a video game creator and Kojima behind it, before we need to classify it as something else we have to do one of two things which is classify it as a as a bad game by the terms we use or come up with something else to describe it because okay i think the turning point for kojima was in metal gear solid 5 in metal gear solid 5 and this is the largely the origin of his friction with konami and eventually why he was let go he wanted Metal Gear Solid V to be a harrowing, unenjoyable experience with child soldiers that you could kill. It was supposed to depict the horrors of war. I think that he finally got his wish in having his own studio in that he could make whatever the hell he wanted. And what he's been wanting to make for a long time is a video game that doesn't care if you have fun or enjoy it. Or is good by standard definition. Maybe it's just a video game you couldn't rate. Because I don't think that we have a video game rating system that accounts for a creation like that. Can we say that art's good if it's meant to be unenjoyable? And is. And succeeds in doing that. There was a, a, a line that uh, my one of my writing professors liked to, liked to tote out. Uh, you can make a character boring... But you need to do it in an interesting way. Yeah. You can't make a bit a character boring in a boring way because we won't care. You can make an unfun game, but you need to do it in an interesting way. And I think Kojima absolutely is succeeding at that. In a way that Rockstar towed the line. They made a boring game in a fun way because the story was good. Yeah. Kojima is making a boring game or a non-fun game in an interesting way and in that... So much detail, so much of the AAA, like, attention is being given to this game. It's interesting, and it's not fun, and that's the point. And I think it's highlighting that criticism of video games, on the whole, is useless. Yeah. I don't think that's wrong. And so I, I, I preface this whole conversation with we might need to not call it a game. One, to get you to engage, John. Yeah. And to get our listeners to engage, too. But two, I didn't really mean that. Mm -hmm. It's just so many people right now are having that conversation. Yeah. They're having the conversation of this isn't fun. This isn't enjoyable. We should probably not call it a game. People are labeling a walking simulator not out of categorical categorization, 
but out of redundant or reducing it. Yeah. To people didn't like Gone Home. Mm-hmm. People didn't like the Stanley Parable. Yeah. Walking simulators get a bad rep in video games because people search for the game in games. Yeah. What we're experiencing is a revolution in storytelling, which is all Hideo Kojima wants to do. Yeah, it's his one goal. Metal Gear Solid 4 had multiple 40-minute and hour-plus cutscenes. Mm-hmm. There is a two-hour cutscene in Death Stranding. Amazing. There are multiple hour-plus cutscenes in Death Strandings. The announcement that Hideo Kojima Studio, Kojima Studios, wants to make movies comes as no surprise to anyone who has followed him. Not at all. They'd be cheaper, too, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but this cultural tour de force of the video game medium is defying the video game medium. It is something else. Do you think... Now, the conversation we're having is the the way that we judge video games... Is flawed. Is flawed. I don't pay a lot of attention to movie journalism. However, no movie review, or at least I don't think typically, has a numerical score attached to it. Like, movie reviews usually aren't, like, quantified, right? Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes, but that's an aggregate of percentages of reviews that are positive, which is why Rotten Tomatoes is bad. Uh, we've caught on record on this podcast, Rotten Tomatoes not great. Um... I think Robert Ebert does Yeah, it. Roger Ebert, rest his soul, did thumbs up. He does a scale out of five. No, Roger Ebert and uh, Siskel and Ebert did the thumbs up, thumbs down. I thought they do a scale out of five. I don't think so. Maybe you're thinking of Leonard Malton. I don't remember who that is. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's like there's a site still in his name that reviews movies to this day. Maybe they changed to stars. Yeah, they absolutely do stars. So weird. Yeah, I guess maybe movies have stars. IMDb does stars. Yeah. Which is an aggregate of user reviews. I don't... Yeah, and users can rate it, whatever. So I guess there is quanta... AV Club does their weird grading scale. Yeah, I guess they do quantify. I was thinking... Books don't do... Book reviews definitely don't do that. (laughs) House of Leaves, 7 out of 10. Um... Oh, Goodreads does that. (laughs) Great. That, again, that's user-based. Next, on X-Play. So if we think of art as the classical definition of art, if you go to a museum, one, you see no criticism next to the piece. Mm-hmm. Two, it's definitely not out of a, a number scale, a star scale, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Usually art criticism talks about the elements of the art yeah, and tries to maybe posit why the artist made those choices. Mm-hmm. Is that what we got to do with video games now? Sure. I think video games and movies should be treated as literature. We can discuss them and criticize them in terms of, like, what the piece tries to do. And what it succeeds at. And what it succeeds at and what it fails at. And not focus so much on, is it fun? Yeah. Is it enjoyable? That is marketing. Mm Mm-hmm. And marketing does not service art. It yeah. never has. The The concern that I have with quantifying 
how much a single reviewer liked something, and I've fallen into this myself, Yeah, is that you'll look at the aggregate review of something and make a snap judgment as to whether or not you should see it, which is a complete disservice to your completely subjective view of the thing. If you truly care about how something is, and you want to know, read a review... And that review could just be criticism. Yeah. And from find sources you trust. There's... I think we've talked about on the podcast before how Rotten Tomatoes is bad because we shouldn't, like, quantify how many people enjoyed something versus didn't. Absolutely. Like, when it comes to discussing art, a number out of five, an amount of stars, it doesn't serve as a conversation about it at all. Like, you, you could look at... Uh, an Andy Warhol and a classically trained artist who, 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 you know, uses like Renaissance styles looks at these screen prints and they're like, that's not art. That is zero out of 10 yeah, or whatever. And then, but that doesn't service what Andy Warhol was trying to do mm-hmm. saying that art is now mass produced yeah. because everything is mass produced. He's commenting on the time period in his pieces and not so much the artistic sort of things or, or, or techniques used to create the piece. Mm-hmm. Andy Warhol and Hideo Kojima are kind of cut from the same cloth. They're using the industry to make a comment about storytelling or or what the deeper meaning of video games is about. Yeah. Not, or, or the the medium they're using is about. Because mm-hmm. um, Andy Warhol famously did not make any video games. Famously. Famously did not make. He, he was, almost made one. He he almost tripped and created Pac-Man, but then yeah. at the last second... He, he caught himself. Yeah, he got his balance, and Pac-Man yeah. had to wait a couple of more uh, decades to be made. Yeah, th- thank God for that. Yeah. Who knows where we'd be. Oh, I don't know. Death Stranding would have come out in, like, 2004. Where's that episode of The Watchmen? <laughs> uh, it'll, it's coming. Uh, yeah, I, I did not think that I would... Have such a damning opinion about video game criticism. Well, I, I mean, I hate video game journalism. Yeah, but it. This, I, this I do is, think its criticism is fundamentally flawed, as we've as we've discussed. Th- this is a conversation that's been needing to be had for a while, because there is a there is absolutely a cycle between like game developers and game video game journalists and consumers. Mm-hmm. Where it's like the developers, they treat journalists well, like they have a good relationship, and they expect good reviews from those journalists so that the consumers read their reviews and buy the games. And we've talked about that symbiotic relationship. Sometimes people's bonuses are based on Metacritic ratings. Obsidian. Obsidian and and Fallout New Vegas absolutely was. These two, well, Bethesda was behind that. Uh, And their assholes. Yeah, Bethesda, not... Yeah. Not great. Uh, but that relationship should not exist. Yeah. The direct relationship between critic and art should be separate. They should be bicameral houses. There should be this house creates art, this house critiques it, or comments on it. Well, it, it, yeah. They sh- Exactly. Like, book critics and movie critics. The studios aren't talking to the movie critics. Book writers aren't talking to the the people that review them. Mm-hmm. Only and same thing happens in music. Music critics rarely talk 
to musicians. Mm-hmm. Only very recently, Lana Del Rey called out somebody for saying that she, I don't know, look into the Lana Del Rey mini blip of a of a scandal. She went after a critic who didn't like her, her, her latest album. Oh, no. Uh, and it's very funny. Because this is a conversation we should absolutely be having. Artists and conversation with critics. Because it used to be that critics would critique artists who were dead, who were gone, who could not comment back. Yeah. But the, 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 the membrane is so thin now. Because one relies on the other, at least in video games and movies, they sort of rely on each other. Mm-hmm. And so they try to have this good relationship, but in the end of, at the end of the day, are they sort of corrupting each other? I mean, in video games, the membrane is so thin that marketing and criticism are effectively the same thing. Yeah. I mean, if you make a bad game, the critics will call you out on it and your game will do bad. Uh, what's the name of the game? Um, Ghost Recon Point Break mm-hmm. came out like maybe two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. Yeah. And it's so bad that the CEO of U- Ubisoft admitted in an interview, yeah, we missed the mark. Okay. Well, and, that's and critics, good, I guess. Critics called them, called them out on it. Mm-hmm. But still, there were people who were like, yeah, eight out of ten. Yeah. Because, you know, what are we going to say about a shooter? Yeah. Now, it's 8 out of 10. They gave me a code. What am yeah, I supposed to do? Yeah. Hideo Kojima has given us a conversation. And I think the reason why Sony lifted the embargo so early was because they knew reviews weren't going to do much for sales for this game. Oh, yeah. Either you're going to buy it or you're not. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, Hideo Kojima is going to keep making stuff regardless. He can't be stopped. He can't be stopped. He's dirt, motherfucker. He can't be crushed. And so they were like, if if reviews don't mean much to the sales of this game, let's lift it early and start this conversation because at least that'll get attention. Yeah. It's it, marketing in a different way. It's extremely shrewd to do so because knowing that this game would be divisive and impossible only heightens its mystique. Yeah. Because the, the thing that Death Stranding had going for it was no one was like... This is going to be a fun game. They said, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Everything about Death Stranding has been completely mystifying. And if you lift the embargo early and allow people to say, I don't know if this is a video game or not, even better. And and if people are saying, we can't give this a score because it broke our rating system, that's even better marketing. Yeah, the thing is... There are so many reviews saying that it is not fun, mm-hmm. that it's unenjoyable, but the scores are all very much in the 10, 9, 8 percentile, mm-hmm. like 190, 80, very high reviews, despite the fact that in the same reviews they're saying it is grueling, it is arduous. It is hard to get through. Five out of five. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. No movie critic is like, the pacing is way too slow. And a loud, <laughs> like a loud blaring soundtrack is deafening you the entire time. Ten out of ten. <laughs> Bring the whole family. Like, that I, doesn't happen. I will say that did maybe happen for Dunkirk. But I'm not sure. 
Maybe, oh, I never I think, saw it. I think maybe reviews for Dunkirk literally said that. Oh, maybe. They said, loud soundtrack, pacing is weird, best movie I've ever seen. Okay, so so maybe it does happen. Maybe. maybe. Uh, but that was mostly just a dig at Dunkirk. Uh, I, uh, I never saw it because uh, I, I'm in a weird phase of my life where I don't want to watch war movies because that was one of my greatest fears growing up. Being a war? G- getting drafted for the war. Oh, I got some bad news, Henry. That was the fourth thing I was going to talk about. I'm aged out of it by now. Oh, no, I signed us both up. (laughs) Went to my local recruiter's office, and they said, when you get out, you can afford a PS4. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, by the time you get out, the PS5 will be out. Yeah, that's a shame. Really should have thought about that. But at least I get college credit. I will say, uh, Kotaku has this, this great journalist. I actually think he's great. His name is Tim Rogers. You've probably heard of him. Yes. He did a review of Death Stranding. It is an hour-long video. I highly recommend you find an hour of your day, even if you have no regard for video games or anything else, even if you've never heard of Death Stranding, watch this video. The man is hilarious. If we're talking about how... Video game criticism can change to be more applicable in the future. I feel like Tim Rogers has been doing it right. Tim Rogers has a he has a Thursday segment that is just like an impromptu Thursday video. And uh, one time, this must have been this was in September. He on camera, just sitting in front of a camera, from memory, described. To 100% accuracy, the first 40 minutes of Link's Awakening. While somebody else showed you, like, there was footage showing his descriptions being accurate of each screen of that game. The man has a condition where (laughs) he... He has no choice. He has perfect recall. It's a very entertaining video. It's a very debilitating disease. Yeah. Or condition... Uh, Tim Rogers is, is, is a tort of force of of video game journalism. Absolutely. And his Death Stranding review is an hour and, an hour and 24 seconds long. So if there's two things you can take away from this episode of Zero Podcast, number, Zero Podcast, (laughs) of Zero Credits. We are Zero Podcast. Uh, number one, watch Big Structural Bailey. If you've got 30 seconds free, and then for a little dessert, when you've got an hour free, maybe in the evening, watch the Tim Rogers review of Death Stranding on Kotaku.com. Here's a quote from the Tim Rogers review. Hideo Kojima once made a famous analogy to steak. He said the PlayStation 3 was like a steak you could have at a fancy restaurant. The Xbox 360 was like a steak you could eat at a friend's house. And the Nintendo Wii was like a steak you could make yourself at home. With Death Stranding, Hideo Kojima has finally made a game that is like eating 60 pounds of vegetables <laughs> at gunpoint. Does a silky slab of meat and triumphant pile of potatoes await afterward? I won't say. <laughs> Amazing. So good. Death Stranding. We're going to give it the... Affi- we have not played it. Yes. I want to make this clear. The game is not out, and we are not given a review copy. But we are going to pool our resources uh, and then buy me a copy of Death Stranding. And I want to give it the official Zero Credits, credits rating. An Italian chef <laughs> and a French chef, French kissing, 
while holding their 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 okay fingers up into the air out of three. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like a, a big like three D X that comes up and then yeah, uh, yeah. Megan the Stallion or whoever the co host of X Play was. Um, oh, wasn't she the one that made Hot Girl Summer? Yeah, Megan the Stallion. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't remember the name of the co-host of X-Play. Adam Sessler. Oh, no, it was Adam Kovic. No, it's not. Anyway. He was on G4. I f- no, he wasn't. No. That's Bruce Green. No. No. He wasn't on it, and he was behind the scenes. Leo Laporte? He was a producer. Olivia nice. Munn. Yeah. Now that we've just started talking about things that happened 15 years ago, first of all, okay, Boomer. Uh, <laughs> Is that all it takes now? That's all it takes. 15 just years? Just talk about things that happened in the past. Uh, but I think that brings us artfully to the end of this week's episode of Zero Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Zero Podcast. Show things. <laughs> what is this, like episode 158? 157. It was pretty close. Uh, is it too late to rename it Zero Podcast? Yes. God damn it. It is too late to do a multitude of things. We cannot rename it. We cannot change the art ever because it takes two years for, the, <laughs> for iTunes to pick up on the art change. Yes. Uh, we also can never change our host because... We could probably get rid of one of us. I volunteer. Bye. Okay. I'll replace you. Uh, is Allison free on Tuesday nights? No, she has improv. We can always do we it We did on just get a new cat, though. You could have the cat on here. Oh, the cat. The cat. Anyway, end of the episode. The episode has ended. What did we learn, John? Uh, we big learned... Big Structural Bailey. We learned Big Structural Bailey. We learned go to the concerts of the bands you like... It's a religious experience, much like Big Structural Bailey. We learned... What? What is the third thing you did? Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. It's all right in our book. Fuck people. Just like Big Structural Bailey says. And then we learned art is art. Maybe video games need to be reclassified as something else. Maybe we should stop fucking criticizing everything. And now the only lesson left to learn... Is that Death Stranding is the Big Structural Bailey of video games. And I could not have said that better. The final lesson we have to learn is the social media, which I believe, to the best of your knowledge, I'm editing this week. So it falls to you. Wait, are we going to have this conversation on the air? You can edit this week, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, sure, man. I'm gonna get the, I love it, man. I'm going to get the episode Friday at noon. Uh, who can say? I might have a show tomorrow night. Thursday... You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite guarantees in life always end in, you'll see. Yeah, you'll see what happens. And if you want to see what happens, you can send us a tweet at ZCPCWHJ on Twitter.com, which stands for, John, Zeth Cranding, Peth Cranding. Weth handing dress. Couldn't set it up better myself. If you want to send us your treat C on why Big Structural Bailey is the new big thing in your life, 
You can send us a whole manifesto at zero credits as a podcast at gmail.com. We will forward it to our moms as chainmail. If you want to listen to us on Spotify, boy howdy, can you? You can. Go to the podcast section of Spotify and search for zero credit, open parenthesis, S, close parenthesis, and we will be there with bells on. Ring-a-ding-ding, motherfucker. We're on Apple Podcasts. Please find us. Please search for us. Leave us a review and some stars. Even though we just said stars were bad and criticism is not good. Criticism is the only way podcasts can grow. So criticize the French doors out of us, mother Frenchers. I'm censoring myself now. Skip to Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg is literally a traitor. He is literally a goddamn traitor who has said, and I quote, Fake news is just something we have to deal with in this modern age of bullshit. I want him to be held in contempt of court, so shut up. But don't shut up, because word of the mouth is the only way we can survive. So if you could track down Mark Zuckerberg and leave him a very well-written letter about why you disagree with his policies, about fake news, about Breitbart.com. I might be getting a little political here. But if you could include it as a PS, as a postscript, as my father used to say, if you can include Mark Zuckerberg, please listen to Zero Credits. We would greatly appreciate it. And also, don't do actually anything against Mark Zuckerberg. That might be considered inciting a riot in certain courts of law. Just tell a friend and tell another friend and then that those friends. Right, Mark Zuckerberg, here is his address. It's 32B. And from everyone here at the Zero Credits 2 Bedroom, 2 Bathroom, 2 Living Room, Not So Studio Apartment Studios, we want to wish you... A happy week! Big Structural Bailey! Big Structural Bailey! I love it, Bailey! Bailey, my boy! Edit that out. <laughs> it's not I'm even in. I'm it's editing not it. even in. We're not even in the podcast. Hey, can we roll it back? Can we roll it back? Edit that one out. Edit that one out. Kevin? Who's <laughs> Kevin? You know. Our editor? Duh. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Do I clap? Yes. End the episode. It's over. Clap. The episode ended... Years ago.